0: Very good evening everyone. Venerable children and some other monastics are traveling for the Western Buddhist Monastic Gathering at the moment. So um, yeah, I'll lead this evening's review on the course in Buddhist Reasoning and Debate. So as usual, we'll start by bringing our body and mind into the space, connecting with the breath, and setting a brief motivation. So throughout this book, written by Daniel Perdue, he repeatedly quotes uh, one of his teachers, Lati Rinpoche, in saying that there is no phenomenon that cannot be understood. There is no doctrine that, if studied well, cannot be learned. And there is no person who, if he or she studies well, cannot become wise. And other great sages like Shantideva have also said, there is not a single thing that does not become easier with familiarization. So of course we see this in our direct experience. If we want to learn to play golf and become a professional at golf, we put in lots of hours hitting a round ball into a hole. If we want to become good chefs, right, we spend many, many hours learning how to chop vegetables a certain way, make soup broth, and so on. But as spe- uh, spiritual practitioners, we're trying to familiarize our minds with something quite different. We're not working on a worldly skill, but we're trying to become extremely familiar with beneficial states of mind. Beneficial not just for ourselves, but for all beings around us. So we're getting familiar with love, with compassion, with joy, generosity, fortitude, and of course wisdom. Especially the wisdom that understands the nature of reality. And that's something that's not so... Habitual, you know, because we often take things as they appear. We don't necessarily investigate deeper as to how they actually exist. But that's something we can become familiar with with repeated practice. So, this evening, let's engage in this review as another way to just get familiar with some of the steps on the path to awakening knowing that as we repeat this information again and again it will make us wiser more compassionate and closer to become to becoming fully awakened So for today's review, I thought to just focus on page two hundred and three of this yellow book, if you have it. Um, and if you have a digital copy, it is page. Well, it comes after exercise ten point one. If you don't have the book, that's all right. It's exactly the chart you see on the whiteboard here, and it's basically a visual summary of everything we've gone through in chapter nine and ten. Yeah, what's called Basic Buddhist Ontology. And I thought this was a useful map for us to spend a bit of time with because it's basically the raw material of what we engage with in debate. And for me, I found that if I'm familiar with you know, how things are laid out visually, it's much easier for me to know how things compare. Right? So for example, if someone asks, you know, how do matter and existence compare? Right? Looking at the visual map, it helps me place, like, okay, is one the subset of the other? Are they separate things? Yeah. So I think it doesn't hurt to just go over this material. So that's one purpose, I think, of today's review, just looking at the parts of this map. And hopefully that will help us when we start to compare things. Visually, we see how they relate to each other. And also because I think this is, like, the building block of... All the studies that we engage in to start understanding the nature of reality, um, we first encountered this actually five years ago when children was teaching on a presentation of mind and awareness. So as we, I've and back. I was very fascinated by this material, don't ask me why, and I spent some time making this little graphic organizer uh, that I've sent out to people, and I think people online can download. Um, That's largely based on a presentation of mind and awareness, and she spends the first five talks going over the divisions of the selfless, and then later on she's going to talk about the different kinds of minds that cognize their objects. So if you find this material difficult to follow, if you've been following the Thursday teachings, I highly recommend going to the Mind and Awareness uh, teachings that she gave in 2012, just as a way to flesh out this material. Um, It's also in Foundation of Buddhist Practice, Chapter 2. So those are some resources you can turn to if you need support. And um, Actually, I first came across this material um, on the divisions of the selfless uh, back in Singapore, and I wanted to tell a little bit of a story about that. I had signed up for the uh, foundation for the preservation of the Mahayana tradition center. You know, in Singapore, it's called Amitabha Buddhist Center, and the resident teacher there is also the abbot of Kōpan, and he was teaching this material. It was It's the beginning of the basic program, so you have to imagine there were like hundreds of us who were working adults coming to this center twice a week for this class between I think like 7:30 to 9:30. Everyone's been working a long day. And here's Geshe Cheni, who is uh, educated like a traditional Geshe, trying to teach us the visions of the selfless. Right? And he does it in the most straightforward way, like what our existence, this is the definition, yeah, this is mutually inclusive with this, this, this. So everybody was like, <laughs> after a while, right? Because it's a bit like learning another language, you think? Has that been your experience? Yeah, so you imagine these working adults in a very busy high-pressure society coming in the evenings, and we're like, where is this going? And what was very touching to me was, I think, somewhere in week two or three, he just stopped the class, and he spent 20 minutes giving us encouragement. And actually, that's all I remember from the class. (laughs) (laughs) And, And one other thing that I will tell you about later... But the encouragement was very helpful. You know, he, so he just stopped because he saw everybody was like nodding off or really struggling. And the senior students were so sweet. There were people taking the course for a second time and they had produced graphic organizers to give out to us and hold discussion groups. But we were all like, oh. <laughs> so Geshe so Chani said, you know, he just told us how when he first learned this material, he had a, a super difficult time as well because it's taught to you. And at, I think at the age of 10, you know, he had grown up in a poor village in Nepal His family sent him to Kopan to get a good education. So yeah, there he is, 10 years old, learning about what exists, what doesn't, memorised definitions. And he said by the time he turned 18, he started to wonder, you know, whether he should continue being a monk. And his family contacted him and said, you know, you're 18, you have a good education, maybe you want to think about getting a job. And so, you know, he felt kind of like, I'm not really connecting with the studies, I don't know where this is going. Maybe I should get a job. Yeah, So he talked to the abbot at the time, who was Ken Rinpoche Lama Lundrup, who um, set him straight, <laughs> sat him down and said, you know, this might seem very difficult now, but he told him, you're very bright. We hope to send you to one of the three great seats uh, in India, right? one of the bigger monasteries to finish the Geshe studies. So hang in there, he told him. You know, you will see the purpose of this later on, is what he said to him. So be having a lot of confidence in his teacher, he did. He hung in there and he told us that um, he really appreciated uh, Lama Lundrup's advice because later on he came to see that this was the foundation for all the philosophical studies and it helps us to realize emptiness. So he, he told us that as a, by way of encouragement that he had been down this difficult path himself. And um, so that just made me think, you know, just because you're a monk or nun or even a long-time Buddhist student doesn't necessarily mean you will feel an affinity for this material. Like it's challenging for anybody. So that kind of made all of us feel a bit comforted. It just takes effort and familiarization. And recently Venerable Children was telling me too that she has a lot of friends who are maybe very fluent in Tibetan and they know this material intellectually, but it may not have transformed their minds. Yeah, they still get angry or you know I mean we all get angry but as in you know like you're not not knowing how to uh, afflictive states of mind. So I think she's emphasized a lot the importance of us trying to connect this material with our practice, and yeah, to think about how we can use it to transform our minds. And she said specifically, especially with philosophical material like this, we all have to find ways to get creative in terms of you know how we make it relevant to us and our daily experience. So as we go through this review, I'll pose some questions and hope there's space for a discussion around this, yeah, how we can make this come alive. So anyhow, on the topic of um, getting creative, I thought we would also, before we jump into these maps and so forth, I wanted to take some time to chant the Heart Sutra together.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: For two reasons. So first of all, um, people online may not know that here at the Abbey, we've been chanting the Heart Sutra every day now because it was, uh, Ling Rinpoche has given us the advice that this is going to help dispel the obstacles to good clean air and land and a beautiful environment here because there's been a proposal to build a smelter in Newport that's going to have a very um, severe environmental impact and will definitely affect the abbey because we are in close proximity and of course we care deeply about all the inhabitants in this area. So we've been chanting the Heart Sutra so we'd like to invite our friends online to join us you know, as a way to contribute to, to this cause together. And as we're chanting it, I thought to reflect on two questions. Right, since this is a class on debate and r- logic and reasoning, I'm very curious for people, how does chanting the Heart Sutra help us to dispel you know, this uh, proposal to build a smelter? In your opinion, what's the, what's the logic or what's, what's happening there? You know, why do we chant this to prevent the building of a smelter? Okay, that's one. And then, of course, I'm curious uh, how you think it relates to this map of the divisions of the selfless. So we can think about that as we're chanting. Um, so, something will you kindly... Yes, I was, and I forgot. So, it will be fishless. (laughs) The fishless chanting. We use a wooden fish to keep time, but I'm sure we can uh, cope.
1: Namo Shakyamuni Buddha Namo Shakyamuni uda hanamash kya I have heard at one one time, time, the Blessed One was one dwelling, dwelling in, in Rajagri on Vulture's Mountain, together in one method with a great assembly, assembly of monastics and a great assembly, assembly of Bodhisattvas. At that time, the Blessed One was absorbed, concentration on the countless aspects of phenomena, called profound illumination. At that time, also, Rāvalokitasvara, the Bodhisattva, the great being, was looking perfectly. The practice of the profound perfection of wisdom, perfectly looking at the emptiness, inherent existence of the five aggregates, also then through the power of Buddha, Venerable Shariputra said to Superior Avalokiteshvara, Sattva, the the great being, how should a child of the lineage train who wishes to engage in the practice of the profound perfection of wisdom? Can Superior superior, Avalokiteshvara Teshwara, the Bodhisattva, the Great Being, replied to Venerable Shariputra as follows... Putra, whatever son or daughter of the lineage wishes to engage in the practice of the profound perfection of wisdom should look perfectly like this, subsequently looking perfectly and correctly. emptiness of inherent existence of the five aggregates also. Empty emptiness is form. Emptiness is not other than form. Form also is not other than emptiness. Likewise, feeling, discrimination, compositional, Factors and consciousness are empty. Chariputra, like this, all phenomena are merely empty, having, having no characteristics, characteristics. They are not, not produce and do not, they 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 and, they they and do not cease. They have no defilement and no separation from, from defilement, no, no decrease and no increase. increase. Therefore, Shariputra, in <inaudible> emptiness, there is no form, no feeling, no discrimination, no compositional factors, no consciousness, there is no I, no you, no nose, no tongue, no body. No mind, no form, no sound, no smell, no taste, no tactile tactile, object, object, no phenomena, no no eye element, and so forth, up to no mind element, 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 and and also up to no element element, of mental consciousness. There is no ignorance and no exhaustion of ignorance, up to no aging and death, and no exhaustion of aging and death. Likewise, there is no suffering, origin, cessation, or path, no exalted wisdom, no attainment, and also no no non-attainment, therefore Shariputra, because there is no attainment, bodhisattvas rely on and abide in the perfection of wisdom. No obstructions and no fear passing utterly beyond perversity, they attain the final state beyond sorrow. Also all the Buddhas who perfectly reside in the three times, relying upon the perfection of wisdom, become manifest and complete Buddhas in the state of unsurpassed perfection and complete awakening Therefore, the mantra of the, the perfection, perfection of wisdom the mantra of, of great knowledge the unsurpassed mantra the equal the to the unequal mantra mantra that, that thoroughly pacifies all suffering since it is not false should be known as the truth the mantra of the perfection of wisdom is, is proclaimed thaya, tagate gate paragate parasamgate putra great being should train in the, the profound perfection, perfection of wisdom like this. Then and the Blessed One arose from that concentration and, and said to Superior, Avalokiteshwarat, Satva the great being that he has spoken, well, good, good, good oh child of the lineage, it is like that since it is like that just as you have revealed, the profound perfection of wisdom should be practiced in that way. Tagatas will also rejoice when the Blessed One has said this, Venerable Shari, Ruputra superior, Awa, Lohi, Teshwara, the Bodhisattva, the Great Being, the entire assembly of disciples, as well as the worldly beings, gods, humans, demi-gods, and spirits, were delighted and highly praised what had been spoken by the Blessed One.
0: Okay, so what do folks think? How does this help us to prevent a smelter being built in our backyard? I
2: think that the Hatsutra um points out that things are not in inherent existence, so also our thoughts and um our emotions, feelings our perceptions are not in inherent they in front of us and or within us, so if we reflect upon dependent arising emptiness, then um it is connected with a sense of clarity. So we will see the whole thing that's, that may be built in front of us more in a lighter way. So afflictions can be um, light, lightly, how to say, can be subdued by that. So if you want to contact and for example, discuss with those who are um, in the project involved, we need a clear mind for that. and if we have afflictions that may even counteract our interests and also their interests. So, yeah, we may have more success with, with a mind that understands that things are um, not existing how they appear to us. Mm. Yeah. And not just in regard to those who are involved, but in general with people we are in contact with, how we approach, how we make people aware of that, happening here?
3: Well, the way I want to look at it is that by reciting the Heart Sutra, and, and because you have to keep so focused on what you're saying, it like really changes sort of the internal energy of the mind, that I find it to be an extremely profound purification practice mm-hmm. as far as dispelling the self-grasping ignorance, although it's a long way down the road. I would have to think that collectively as a community because we're part of this area that we have created the causes and conditions to be in an environmental situation like this where not only is, is our health endangered by this, but also the health of a lot of living beings. So I would like to think that the Heart Sutra is removing, and because we're dedicating it for everything, is that we're somehow being able to purify perhaps some of these destructive causes we may have created in the past that are now having this perhaps ripen in this way. So if they're going to ripen, they might be able to ripen in a much less environmentally more benign way or in some way. So I think this is an extremely powerful way to mitigate whatever destructive karma we have created collectively as a community near and in the Northwest in America so that we can have the ripening result be if it does ripen in something more, uh, less harmful.
4: I think that um, uh, by reciting the Heart Sutra each time I'm reminded of... um, again, uh, the lack of inherent existence, and that um, brings my mind to a more um, vast state, and so I'm not holding so tightly to whatever is happening here. I have a more um, vast view, I would say, and um, then because of that, holding it not like oh, they're going to build this, it's going to be terrible. When I have that mind, I'm actually helping to create, build that. Mm -hmm. And so when I have this other, more realistic mind, I'm not putting any energy into that uh, smelter being built. And um, that feels a whole lot better for me, Mm -hmm. just to think of it that way.
5: There's, There's going to be so many causes, there are so many causes and conditions conditions needed for this to come to fruition it's very complex and as we learn more and more as we've been learning more and more about this company over the past 15 months what they're trying to articulate keeps shifting Mm -hmm. and so it's not this solid inherently existent three-dimensional thing out there about to descend from the sky and plant itself on that property beside Newport it's just these constantly shifting ideas And at at this point right now, it's just in the idea form. And so by um, reciting the Heart Sutra, which is this tremendous creation of merit and purification, as Venmo Semke was saying, you know, however prayer works, I honestly don't understand it. I have faith in it. But I think, you know, this tremendous, powerful energy that's positive is going to have an effect on these things that are trying to gel. And so it's my hope that, you know... That the thing doesn't get built, but that there's a positive outcome for the the owners too, that they come to some kind of maybe realization that, oh, this is actually not where we should be putting our time and energy and money. Maybe we can, you know, do something more virtuous. That's my hope. But who knows?
6: Yeah, I agree with what everyone's already said. Um, It really points to the mind as the source of change and as the source of happiness and the source of our experience so mm-hmm. it kind of instead of looking outward so much it turns it right back around to focus on our mind which is you know what what we do as practitioners and also it, it provides this kind of relief psychological relief because once we realize that we're less we're we're grasping less at you know the outside world and we're sort of we're able to let go a little bit Of our expectations Or our hopes and our fears So I think it provides Like a psychological relief too
0: Thank you so much Everyone For sharing Oh no I totally am on the same page But it's just nice to hear Everyone share how Yeah that Chanting the Heart Sutra Helps us to keep our minds Balanced In a difficult situation Right Not to create the mental cause For a negative outcome by getting angry or afflicted or upset. And at the same time, like you said, to have that big view to think, well, if we're experiencing something negative or will experience something negative, I have created the cause in the past. So when we think about dependent arising to purify those causes as well. Yeah. I think it's very helpful to keep that in mind. And um, I got curious because, you know, in Asia, often people are asked to recite the Heart Sutra or copy it out right, as a form of dispelling interferences. And people do it out of faith without even understanding the content of the Heart Sutra. Um, I had a student who got into a terrible car accident and it was a Taoist priest who told all his friends to copy out the Heart Sutra in Chinese to help him to get well. So all these boys, they were all part of a gang, I tell you. like, So do not come to school, very bad attitude. I go to the hospital and all these boys are sitting there quietly copying out the Heart Sutra. And I'm like, what? To save their friend's life, right? It's like, do they understand a single word of it? I don't think so. But to save their friend's life, they have faith in this Taoist priest, they're going to do it. Uh, he did get well. <laughs> but, you know. But I think it goes a level further when we actually reflect on its meaning. And then I think it really has a transformative effect. And then of of course on the level of people with faith, it just makes a some kind of imprint, I guess, where you start wondering what could it mean? Know this, know that, no, 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 (laughs) no. Why is this the most powerful mantra? Hmm." (laughs) And yeah. And then it starts to get you to, you know, get interested, I think. Yeah. So yeah, so that takes us to the next question. How do you think this Heart Sutra, you know, the text of it, how do you think it relates to what we've been studying about? what exists and what doesn't do we see familiar words from the two yeah for sure like what yeah phenomena hey that's the first one yeah so i don't know for for me at least when i think like oh my god this is so hard to memorize then i realize we were chanting this every day so you know that first of all immediately we're chanting about phenomena Right? Things that exist, right? And what is it about the things that exist, right? Underneath there is no form, right? right. No. Yeah, feeling, discrimination, consciousness. mental, conscious factors, no consciousness. consciousness. Yeah, so immediately the five aggregates. Where do the other four aggregates fit? So form is here, the other four are. Consciousness. And
3: abstract I would say, just the uh, compositional factors.
0: Yeah, maybe some of the compositional factors there. So, yeah, in then-produced book, he points out that in the Gomang-collected topics, they do not divide impermanence into three. They divide the impermanence into five, the five aggregates. So, yeah, we're immediately chanting about the five aggregates, the basis upon which we impute a person, right? And... We break it down and we find out there is no uh, ear, nose, tongue, body, right? So these are all sense... It's all talking about the sense powers. Yeah, we're not talking about the gross eyeball, like you have no eyeball, but we're talking about, yeah, the sense powers. And then we talk about how there's no form, sound, smell, taste, tangible objects, right? Then no eye element, and up, up to to, no mind the element, no um, the mental consciousness, consciousness. yeah... So that includes all these consciousnesses here. Yeah, so we're chanting about how all these... No, 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 no.
3: <laughs> I think also, too, part of the heart to does the, the um, origin suffering you know, the disintegration, I think the whole products, causes, and effects composed phenomena. I think the whole functioning thing is in there, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think production and cessation would be... No, production, what is it? Arising, ceasing, and things like that, right? I think we can look at the list later, the parts, I think. Uh, the
3: cause and effects of Yes.
0: Yeah, so everything under impermanent gets mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and we can look at that later too. How do the four truths map onto here? <laughs> yeah. Then I have another question. So why is this not called divisions of the empty? Why is it divisions of the selfless? you know, if we just chanted the heart Sutra, right, and it's about how all phenomena are empty, then why is this the divisions of the selfless?
3: In lower schools, they don't posit an emptiness of inherent existence. They posit a selflessness as either, this school, the core selflessness, I think, is the permanent, unitary, independent, and the subtle is the self-sufficient, substantial existence. So they're not up in the emptiness uh, paradigm.
0: yeah. So, but that's something that I found helpful to think about too. Like every day we chant the Heart Sutra, that's like the final view we're trying to get to, right? Lack of inherent existence of what we see, hear, all these forms. There, there, uh, in, the fine, in the Middle Way Consequence School, we talk about the emptiness of inherent existence of phenomena, right? And that, end persons, right? That's the final view we are trying to get to, right? But when we're studying this, we're positing that objects do exist from their own side, right? And they're only, um, in terms of selfless, right? The definition is that it is um, lacking a permanent, unitary, and independent self, right? So that's what's posited by the non-Buddhists, right? That there is some kind of permanent creator god or or substance, something that is separate from the body and mind that can stand on its own and produce effects. But that's what a lot of non-Buddhist schools assert back in the Buddhist time and right now too. Yeah. So in order to for the Buddhist presentation of what exists, it starts with something it starts with saying that all phenomena all phenomena are without a self. Right? So the definition of the selfless is Yes, there was just without a self. <laughs> yes, just a self. And then when we look further, what, what kind of self are we talking about here? We're talking about the permanent, unitary, and independent self. Yeah. So, you know, doesn't change moment to moment, doesn't have parts, and somehow stands on its own, separate from aggregates. Yeah. So that's, that, that is not found here, <laughs> such a self. And the assertion is that all phenomena lack such a self. Right? And then as you said, we are studying this according to what's called the Sautran Thikastu, can't speak Sanskrit, Sutra School, Sutra School. <laughs> and they assert that uh, and what the, the goal of studying all this is to realize that the person, this person that we hang on to as an I that's independent and, and that we cherish so much, is actually doesn't exist the way that we think it does. That all phenomena lack, no, sorry, all persons lack such a self. There's no such thing as a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Yeah? A person that is, again, set up from its own side. Independent of causes and conditions, yeah. Somehow, you know, one of the aggregates in control. Yeah. All right. So that's the goal of this study to try and uh, understand that that's actually that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. So I thought you know, anytime you feel discouraged or puzzled, you can rejoice that you are reciting the Heart Sutra every day and getting in touch with this material repeatedly, again and again, and creating the cause to realize it. Um, yeah, so that was Divisions of the Selfless and the End. Okay, so I wanted to now get into our, this graphic organizer <laughs> that is from, the one that has this title, Divisions of the Selfless, yeah, to help us have a look at what's in this map. And uh, much of this material is from the minor teachings that Venerable Children gave. And again, she started that whole series of teachings by taking a, quite a long time just to set up why we study the material. Um, I'm not going to go through this, but the first chart is just how she talked about how when we generate bodhicitta... Do people, are we on the same page? Yeah, Yeah, so it's just this first page where she immediately goes to dependent arising yeah causal dependence where she talks about how when we have an aspiration like bodhicitta we work backwards and think about all the causes one by one how they lead us to generate that yeah so it's a very beautiful meditation that she leads there yeah i would h- highly encourage people to go listen to it yeah but basically she was saying you know whenever you want to achieve something you can just work backwards to trace its causes and then you can work forwards to trace its results as well. So that was back then, when she talked about our motivation for studying. And then uh, we come to page 3, right, where she also talked about why we learn this material. Right? I think we've covered these points already, Right, that basically they help us to understand how the mind works, what kind of objects we're cognizing, helps us to analyze what is the person it's the foundation for further study of the tenets and i think what's missing here though is what daniel Perdue has been saying again and again in his book yeah this is actually like ba- he calls it basic vipassana right like a way for us to start meditating on what we see and what we hear <coughs> yeah so <laughs> we can get to that later there's a like puzzled look yeah i'm curious how people are applying it or not <laughs> yeah
3: think that the one down that says stimulate us to think on a deeper level about what is in our environment Mm -hmm. I'd say that might match up a little bit with Daniel Perdue Oh
0: yeah that's true yeah 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 so I think you know not to leave this I was thinking too like we're not studying this in order to debate I think we're studying debate in order to understand this right it's the other way around yeah and if debate does not work as a format for you you can take it into meditation Right. And Venerable's been getting us to think about that as well. Yeah. So or Dan Purdue repeatedly says, you know, don't worry so much about getting it right. Just check it out. When you observe things, is it a form? Is it a consciousness? Is it a person? Where does it fit? Yeah. What am I actually seeing and hearing? Yeah. And then um in the next page you'll see, and Venerable talked to us about how to listen to teachings. <laughs> If you go back to those recordings, which I think you have, Venerable Semke, you will hear all of us uh, repeatedly asking her questions endlessly because it was such puzzling material. And so, you know, the first three parts are familiar from the lam rim, right? Where you try not to be the upside down pot, try not to be the leaky pot, try not to be the pot that has dirt, right? So that your polluted motivation affects your study. And she told us not to be the pot with popcorn because <laughs> that's what we were constantly asking her questions, like, why, why do you say that, but, but, but? And she couldn't finish the teaching. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, just emphasizing that if we have difficulty with the material, again, we can just come back and check in with our motivation. Like, why are we studying this, you know? And what's our struggle around? Um, Yeah. So at the bottom of page four here, she pointed out that this presentation is about um, what is selfless as defined... By the Sautrantika school, at which they define as anything that is not a substantial person or the property of a substantial person. And that's not to be confused with the final view posited by the Middle Way Consequence School, which is that which does not inherently exist. Yeah, so that's just background information. And um, back in the mind and awareness teaching, she often switched between the two. So it can get a bit confusing. <laughs> but yeah, so just to keep it straight. Just remember that this school, yeah, posits that objects exist the way they appear. Yeah, These, the table exists the way it appears. I can see it. I can use it as a table. This is how it exists. Yeah, the problem is my grasping at some kind of self of persons that doesn't exist. So okay, so page five is basically a repeat of what you see here. Um, just that she went into my me, mental factors. Yeah. And we can, I don't think, then Purdue doesn't cover mental factors, but yeah, that's like good to know. And we'll, we'll encounter it later on in the foundation of Buddhist practice. Okay. I wanted to start with page six. Yeah, and what I found interesting was that we both went straight to this when she was presenting the material back then, right? Because why? Why do you think she started with the non existence? Because we know this so well, we so well. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, she was going to the heart of the problem. Now, the deep root of our problem is that we keep thinking that things that are non-existent exist, and we hang on to them, and we, and you know, our whole day revolves around maybe a non-existent idea. <laughs> yeah, and what I loved was that you know, even though in our debates and so forth. Um, the usual examples are things like sky flower, <laughs> turtle's mustache, kind of almost ludicrous, right? But she pointed out that very often the things that we're clinging to are things like the idea of a permanent creator, right? Someone who, or some being out there that never changes, that's going to take away all our, our problems, or I don't know, I didn't grow up with that idea, but, you know, it's like in the background. Or all of us who cling at a self a persons, Right, The idea that there's me and I'm important because I'm me and I'm in charge and I control this body, I control this mind, I'm never going to get sick and if I tell you what to do, you're going to do it. <laughs> that kind of I. Right? And then all the objects that we get attached to or that we hate. What do you think about that? They don't exist? Really? <laughs> How so?
3: They're all total like proliferations, total exaggerations. So there might have been something, I know for myself, that there's somebody in front of me, but if I'm extremely attached to an outcome in relationship to them or I don't like them, I've suddenly changed them into somebody that isn't even there, imputing a lot of exaggerated negative qualities if I don't like them. Or if I really like them, I put a whole bunch of exaggerated qualities that they simply don't have at the level that I think they do. So I really am attached or adverse to, adverse to something that really does not exist on the conventional level, much less on the ultimate level.
0: Yeah. So that's something for us to watch out for. That um, I mean, going to, back to definitions, right? Like when we talk about attach, the mind of attachment, we're talking about a mind that has exaggerated positive qualities of something or projected those that don't even exist. So the basis of the projection might be there, Right yeah, here's my mother, right? Or I understand today you talked about my daughter, right? You have a daughter, right? She's there. And then some ideas and expectations you have about her might not be realistic, right? Or even ideas and expectations you have about yourself in relation to her are not realistic. They don't exist. And yet, that's how we interact, we live, and that causes us a tremendous amount of pain, yeah expecting that. Someone is never going to change, or always going to love us, or you know. I think we we get the point here, yeah. So that's really the fundamental purpose of this study. I think yeah, she started there to help us get clear, like what is non-existent. We have to figure out as we go through the day. Yeah, when I'm very upset with someone, am I upset with a person that's actually there, or have I made them into some evil monster? You know, they, they are the one thing that they did and I can't forgive them. That person actually doesn't exist. So why am I ruminating over that? Right. So I think that's one way we can bring this material into our practice, just checking up. This thing I'm obsessed about or that I must buy tomorrow. Existent? Non-existent? Why is it running my life? Yeah. That's one piece. Okay, anything else we want to say about non-existence? Is there a definition for non-existence? Yeah, it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those trick questions. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So for something to have a definition, it has to exist. It has to have characteristics. I think the word definition is a really tricky one because, you know, in English, we think of definitions as like they explain something. I feel like in the Tibetan, the actual word uh, in Tibetan, seni means characteristics, I think. And I've seen it translated that way too. I I Craig Preston, he chooses to use a different word than definition, right? Yes, Venerable Nima.
1: Yeah, in the book it says there is no definition because non-existence don't exist. But then he goes (laughs) on to say, Mm -hmm. if there were such a thing as a definition, it would be something like that which is not observed by a reliable cognizer.
0: Yeah, if we needed a working one. or I saw Venerable kind of slips one through (laughs) that which is not perceivable by mind. (laughs) <laughs> right? without getting into like, can we define these or not <laughs> yeah but I mean based on these, you know, this structure of debate if something has no characteristic it doesn't exist so it has no characteristics how are we going to describe it Yeah. so when we think of these the de- when we look at the definitions listed here they don't necessarily um, explain something they're giving us the characteristics of the thing itself right? and its function right? fire is that which is hot and burning Yeah, it's not like, um, I don't know what the English one would be, but
1: yeah. (laughs) What is the,
0: how is it different?
3: Combustion or burning in which substances combine chemically with oxygen from the air and typically give out a bright light, heat, and smoke.
0: Right, so I guess like the English definition would focus more on describing the thing, right? But I feel, I don't know, these Tibetan ones, either the, the words are in there to tell you a characteristic of the thing itself, or it's negating something else is what I see. So sometimes it's actually helpful to look at like each word to try and understand like, what, what, what are they trying to get at there? So I say this because now we come to existence, right? So uh, now what is the definition of an existent? Yeah. So that which is observed by a reliable cognizer. Does that actually tell us anything? <laughs> Why? Do you know what a reliable cognizer is? We haven't gotten there yet. It's for the next few weeks. Yeah, I know. So that's why, you know, you're like, what's a reliable cognizer? But I have to say, back then, I got very excited by this definition (laughs) because it, it helped me understand, how do you know something exists? Well, a mind has to know it, right? I mean, that's the theory here, right? The Buddhist theory is that if it exists, it can be known by mind. And not just any old mind, a mind that's reliable. Okay, yeah, then you ask, what is reliable? Uh, haven't gotten there yet in the curriculum. Thankfully, I don't have to review this. We'll get there. Yeah. So, then, but it's a good question, right? You sit there and you're like, okay, is everything my mind knows reliable? I mean, are all my consciousness is reliable. What makes them reliable, right? How do I know what I know, and how do I know it exists? Hmm. And we can start, you know, pondering that. And not only that, they proceed to tell us that existence. There are eight ways to characterize them. <laughs> They're all synonyms. And it makes you wonder, why did you need so many? I don't know. I was wondering, like, is it just for the sake of memorization? What do people think? Why do you think there are eight characterizations? What could
5: be the purpose of this? When you look at these eight, and as we've been trying to memorize these eight for the last eight months, it's just, it seems like there's different angles where you're coming at this, all this idea of existent. And so I think it's going to help us once we really get into debating. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Shall we try and guess (laughs) what each one helps us to understand about things that exist? I don't know. I feel that helps me to remember these things. Yeah. Because I grew up in like a rote memorization culture. If you tell me just remember, I can, but I wouldn't understand it. I'm very good at memorizing things and then forgetting them about two weeks later, which is what you had to do to pass a test, right? Memorize, blah, and forget about it. But that's not the purpose of us memorizing this material. We're trying to figure out what exists and what doesn't and work with it. So, okay, so yes, this is what is observed by a reliable cognizer. Okay, so now we get, we get some idea of like, okay, there are some minds that are reliable, some are not. Yeah, and what the reliable minds observe exist. okay. And what about established base? What's the definition of this one?
5: That which is established by reliable cognizer.
0: <laughs> Does that give us a different angle?
6: It makes it sound like it's been verified. Uh-huh. Um, like it's, it's got some status now. The, the mind has examined it and it's, it's established. Well, that's just how I read into the, the word established.
0: That sounds what. Yeah, but this school says that. The thing is out there from its own side, right? Like, yeah, this that, that is what it says, right? Yeah, our sutra hats are on, right? We need to make the hat that says sutra hat, right? Because I can see it, I can touch it. And everyone else agrees with me this is a clock. So, therefore, this is the ultimate truth in this system, right? So, yeah, my cognizer is establishing oh, a blue clock. Okay, yeah, known to me and the world. No one's telling me it's yellow. <laughs> it exists. Yeah, I think so. And in the book, too, he talked about how this is, it emphasizes that this is a base. So I was pretty curious about that. I'm not so sure what bases mean here. Yes.
6: It's me a basis of designation, actually. I was wondering if there's a connection between the two, but it might not be because it's a Prasangika term.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought too. I think that might come later. Yeah, but you know, we're just talking about yeah, it's a it's a base, it's a thing. It, it yeah, it has its own entity, right? It's it's focusing on how the mind can actually certify here it is, it exists. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at hearing, smelling, tasting. Yeah. Okay, then now we get to object of comprehension. Do you remember the definition of this? Yeah, so that would just realize by a reliable cognizer. Yeah, so I think the first three definitions just tell us a bit about what real uh, what reliable cognizers do. They observe their object, they establish them, and they realize them. Yeah, so I think here the realized piece too. Yeah, it's without fault, right? It it is not a single eye seeing one moon as two moons, <laughs> not realizing the object. Yeah, it can actually. Appear to the, to the cognizer and it apprehends it, is my guess. yeah. Okay, so yeah, the first three, I think the definitions focus on what the reliable cognizer is doing to establish that this thing exists. Okay, and we get to four object, that which is known by an awareness. So how is this one different? Yeah, the new word is awareness. Are all awarenesses reliable cognizers? No. Yeah, so does that get confusing now? Like that was known by an awareness? <gasps> Any old awareness?
4: Uh, now saying you have to put your attention to it and think about it and so it's an active. To me that's a really
0: uh uh-huh. active. Yeah. Or it opens up the idea of what is known maybe Right. So in the book, too, and in, in our nifty little sheet here, where I think Venerable Lamsel summarized what's in the book, right? where she says, here, known by an awareness qualifies that it is an awareness of something correct and reliable. You cannot know something that is not true, not real, not accurate, not existent. Yeah. So it's just pointing out how we're using the word know in this system. I think when a cognizer knows something, it must be an existent. Yeah. Yeah, so the awareness part, you know, even though it doesn't spell out a reliable awareness, because of the word "know," yeah, which is known by an awareness, it suggests that it exists. Yeah, it can be known. I can't tell you more than that, <laughs> but that's what I understand from the book. Yeah, that here we're emphasizing the known by and what the known part means. Okay, and that links very much to number five. Yeah, object of knowledge, or which Venerable prefers to translate as knowable object. Yeah, and, the, and the definition here is you know, suitable as an object of awareness. So it's, I think, making the same point. Yeah, for it to be suitable, to be an object of awareness, to be known by an awareness, it has to exist. Yeah. Okay, then we get to number six, the object of an omniscient consciousness an object realized <laughs> consciousness. Right. So I don't know, what do people get out of this one? Well, Dan Perdue points out that, for him, I think the main point is that there are such things as omniscient consciousnesses. First of all, to know, hey, there are such things, yeah, that con- could there are consciousnesses that actually know all phenomena in their diversity. Yeah. For me, anyway, it was a bit like, oh, wow, Buddha's... Know things that exist too. It's not like you realize emptiness and everything just disappears and you're in some la la land. Buddhas also see Existence. existence. They see things that we see too or hear them. You know, how they cognize them might be totally different, right? We have all these long questions and debates about that. But things that exist also appear to Buddhist consciousnesses, right? Or the other way around, there's such a thing as a consciousness that can know every single thing that exists. Yeah. Kind of amazing. <laughs> All right. Then we come to number seven, which is hidden phenomena. And what is that? To realize in a hidden manner my thought consciousness apprehending it. Yeah. A hidden manner. What is that? The opposite of.
4: Direct
0: yeah. So, instead of seeing it directly right why is why is it that when we realize things by thought, they are hidden? you get to it through
5: <laughs> a concept or an inference you're not seeing the object directly through reasoning in some way
0: right you're you're not using reasoning to understand the there are like a lot of things going on there, but I think the main thing is that you are getting at the object through a concept, yeah which is not. Direct perception. The whole idea, is in, according to this school, is that when we think of something, we're putting together like a composite, right, from different times, places, past experiences. We have a composite of ice cream. And when we think about it, it stands in for all ice cream, but it's not the same as eating the ice cream, smelling it, tasting it, touching it, seeing it directly, right? Thinking of ice cream is a whole different experience and that's what they're trying to get at but here all phenomena are hidden phenomena so does it tell us anything
5: we don't get to them with direct perceivers
0: all phenomena or oh, we can get to them yeah yeah i think i think here what they're trying to emphasize is that all phenomena can be known by thought is my guess yeah yeah, so not only can we know phenomena directly, right? it is also possible anything that exists, we can know by thinking about it too. So I think that's all that's trying to point out here, that we can know it in this way. So I think in the book he's pointing out, here we're starting to look at the different kinds of cognizers that know these objects. So existence can be known directly, they can be known by thought, but in a hidden manner, by the thought consciousness apprehending it. And finally, then he said number eight is a bit different because phenomena, that which exists, that which holds its own entity, thank you. <laughs> um, the, fo- the focus there is on the entitiness of the thing. Yeah, so again, re- reminding us that this school posits that things exist from their own side. Yeah, so we had talked about this a bit in class, that the Prasangikas would define phenomena differently. And I think Jeffrey gets into that in meditation on emptiness. So, yeah, I thought, you know, just pausing to think about what each definition tells us kind of helps us to get at what we're defining here as existent, yeah? Okay, then we get on to the divisions of existence (laughs) into the seven, right? And again, I I just thought we might just look at... we don't necessarily have to go through the definitions of them all, but I'm curious what you think. You know, each division I think does the same thing again, right? It tells us a bit more about things that exist. Then Purdue pointed out that impermanent and permanent is the most important division. Why do you think that is the case? Any thoughts on <laughs> why impermanent and permanent might be the most important? That's all I exist. There's no third option. It
6: reminds me of samsara versus nirvana. So, in samsara, everything is impermanent um, for the most part. <laughs> Actually, that's a point where I still have some questions about. But the fact is, nirvana is supposedly permanent, and conditioned existence is marked by impermanence.
0: Yeah. Or for me, I thought about how I guess the Buddha's first teaching to all his disciples was uh, all conditioned phenomena are. Impermanent, right? And that's like the heart of that's the first teaching that because things are changing moment by moment, they are not satisfactory, they are not, they don't have a self, and they're not a real refuge and not a reliable place for us to put our attention. And instead, yeah, we should shift towards realizing a permanent state of mind <laughs> called nirvana. And
6: also the five aggregates fall under the impermanent category and that's really our, uh, our focus <laughs> of the self. It's like It's got to be in there somewhere. So I think that, um, that makes it important.
0: Yeah, that got me thinking too. So yes, now we come to what Venerable Sam K was pointing out earlier. Where, so I'm curious, where do you think the four truths fit <laughs> here? Right, when we talk about true sufferings. Yeah, all impermanent phenomena, right? Arduka. Everything in this category is true sufferings. I was curious, do you think any permanents are true sufferings? Like the uncomposed space inside a bottle? <laughs> is it a true suffering? <laughs> huh? If you're thirsty, <laughs> right, right. Maybe there are different, oh yeah, there are different definitions of like polluted and not polluted phenomena, like those that make you create, uh, um, right. So the uncomposed space in my bottle when I'm thirsty makes me angry, so it is a true suffering. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but many of the things that we're going, they're trying to attain are permanence, right? They are, yeah, like non-analytical cessations. Uh, Analytical cessations, right? Yeah, we're trying to go for analytical cessations and uh, nirvana itself. Yeah, uh, permanence. Yeah, okay, true sufferings are there. And what about true causes? Yeah, all consciousnesses, right? Ignorance, yeah, karma. Uh, true paths? No, sorry, true cessations? Yeah, permanence. And then true paths? impermanence. Yeah, under-consciousnesses, I would think. Yeah, path-consciousnesses. So, yeah, I don't know if that does anything for you, but it was just interesting for me to, like, hmm, where is what? Yeah, and where does it fit, and what are we... So how are we, you know, through impermanent procedures generating, arriving at the permanent... (laughs) Okay, something to sleep on. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think this sevenfold division just again tells us a bit more about you know, how we're splitting um, what we're, yeah, true sufferings and what we're trying to get to, maybe. Um, okay, so impermanent and permanent, I think the main characteristic here is pointing out that one is changing moment by moment and the other non-momentary, non-momentary right? A locus, common locus between the non-momentary and, and phenomenon. Yeah. The phenomenon there to negate non-existence. Yeah. So if you look at page 8 of the handout, and here in both Venerable's Mind and Awareness teaching and also in Them produced book, um, they emphasize again and again and again that eternal and, f- and permanent are not the same thing. Right? And I think Venerable Seppel has gone through this before. Yeah. But it's just reminding us that permanent phenomena... You, because in English, when we hear something is permanent, we think... It never goes out of existence, right? But permanence in this system, I mean, when we talk about it in Buddhist philosophy, it just means not changing moment by moment, right? So there are permanents that go out of existence, such as, yeah, the uncomposed space in a bottle and it breaks, right? The selflessness of Karuna, <laughs> uh, when Karuna sees sorry, bad topic, um, nobody wants the cat to die, but <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> I see angry look, <laughs> or pointed looks, Yeah, <laughs> right? The selflessness of me, <laughs> right? The impermanent person, yeah, so like that. So I think he's just emphasizing not to confuse the two, yeah? The eternal and permanent are two different things. And that the main thing we're focusing on here is whether something changes moment by moment or not. Yeah, yeah. So here, when I put, this is from mind and awareness, common meaning common in English. Yeah. So venerable, just pointing out how we typically understand permanent is something that lasts forever, right? But when we're talking about it in Buddhist debate, we're talking about something that's not changing moment by moment. And both of them emphasize this a lot. So I think that's something just to catch in ourselves if we get confused. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and before we go on to the other characteristics, um, if we look at page 10, both in a presentation of mind and awareness and in them produced book, they both emphasize how you know, it's really important for us to understand what impermanence means. Yeah. And our typical view of impermanence is that, you know, things are created by causes, and then they remain static. And then some external cause comes and destroys the thing, and then it ceases. And then Venerable Jigme looks horrified, right? Because, yeah, that's why it's called our wrong view, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's how, before we met the Dharma, I don't know about you, that's how I thought of myself, right? Like, I was born... I'm going to be okay until I get cancer or or some car hits me and then, you know, some horrible person caused my death, right? Whatever, some external cause. But Buddhism's like flipping it around and saying from the moment you were conceived, you already started to age and you're moving towards death. Yeah. Like that the that, that upon creation, the arising, abiding and ceasing is happening already. In every single moment, again and again and again, yeah, so both of them were just making the distinction between the gross impermanence right that we can see on a visual level or experience in a very gross level versus by inference, if things are change if things change on the gross level, they must be changing moment by moment, just that we can't see it right and often I think. I think Venerable said this before to us too, right? It's, it just helps us not to get so attached to things, like just thinking, this cup is already broken. Yeah. I am dying. Yeah, we are all dying. <laughs> yeah. But it still like, comes as a shock. You know? I still remember we went to see Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and he said, I'm giving out these cords for dying people. And I immediately thought, oh, I must get it for my cousin who is sick. And he said, no, I'm giving it to all of you. <laughs> it's like... That's true. I am in the dying person category. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, so that's why a lot of attention is put into this whole thing of impermanent, permanent. It is the most important realization that we need to get to, right? If anything, to live a meaningful life so that we don't think that we go on forever and that some magical external thing is going to happen to end our life or cause it to keep going forever. So I thought here too to just touch on you know what, what do each of the sevenfold divisions tell us? What, what do you think they're pointing out? So the first, impermanent, permanent, okay, talking about change. What about the second one when we compare phenomena that are non-things with functioning things? What does that tell us about the things that exist?
4: Functioning things, serve a purpose, they do something, non-things.
0: Uh, they don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Right, like you so they just sit there. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so the, I think the second point we're just starting to look at how thing, that things, that impermanent things produce results. They have a function, right? Either they create themselves in the next moment, right? Or they have effects, right? They are able to produce effects. They, are, they come about due to causes, yeah? Whereas permanent phenomena don't, yeah? They do not produce effects. It's, all, it's just such a weird idea. Yeah. Yes, they're still, they're still dependent, but they're not created by causes. Yeah, I know, it's like a whole other trip. And I guess the example he gives is the absence of elephants in this room. <laughs> that is not changing by moment by moment. <laughs> it's like an abstract concept. Right and it doesn't produce anything it's not creating an effect right now this absence of elephants in the room right so i think that's something and he said go think about it <laughs> in the book yeah but you know analogies like that help us to get at the idea of what could it mean to have an absence of a self absence of a person that's in control <laughs> it's like the absence of a cow in this room hmm okay we'll sleep on that one <laughs> So that also brings us to number three, right, where the permanents are known as non produced phenomena. Right? The impermanents are products which are synonymous with causes and effects. Yeah. So here we're emphasizing what do you think? Yeah, that things are produced. produced yes, they come about due to causes and conditions. So yeah. Exactly. yeah, and they don't. Yeah. So same thing, same idea here. Right, and then we get into the uncomposed phenomena and the composed phenomena.
3: Disintegrating
0: and not disintegrating. Yeah. So it is in the nature, right? We talked about impermanence being true sufferings because they are, yes, they produce functions, wonderful, but because they are created by causes, they produce effects, they also disintegrate. And yeah, disintegrating, yeah, like the Tibetan word for uh, the world is the disintegrating basis. (laughs) So the dharma is built in there. This world is just constantly disintegrating. The aggregates are constantly disintegrating, even though we think they're so solid and they're here. Versus permanent phenomena, uncomposed, right? Like a lasting state of peace. Yeah.
6: Things have no parts.
0: No, permanent things do have parts.
6: Okay, because composed sounds like it's a grouping, you know of different things.
0: Yeah, I think that's what the English sounds like, but when we read the definition, it's focusing on disintegration. Yeah, and that's what I read in the book too. I had the same thought too, but yeah, but for sure, I mean, emptiness, we talk about the 16 types of emptiness or, you know, the uncomposed space in the bottle has parts if we mentally break it up, right? The the west side of the bottle, as it is here facing the sun, you can go break it up into parts like that. Yeah, the top, of the uncomposed space versus the bottom of the uncomposed space. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the focus there is um, disintegrating and non-disintegrating. Right, then we get to the meaty piece, right, conventional truths and ultimate truths. And Samke, you are shaking your head because...
3: My little uh, prasangika mind just goes, that's, I can't. Something that ultimately can perform a function and something that can't they're just totally opposite from what, you know, part of my brain's saying. So that's what I'm shaking my head about. <laughs> that conventional truths are um, that that are unable to perform a function, but you know, in the prasanga, they, that's what conventional truths are: is that they are able to perform a function; that they do exist conventionally in that way. So it's just seeing it, it yeah. totally opposite from what I
0: right. It's my like mind says. A switch around from what we're used to. I think what helps me is just coming back to the definition of what is an ultimate truth. Oh, that, that's in this school, yeah, yeah. But I think the ultimate cognizers, ooh, it's somewhere in this book. But basically, you know, a, anything, when you can, an ultimate cognizer is one that sees things the way they exist, right? Yeah. When, or when or ultimate truths are things that appear the way they exist, also, yeah. So in this school, what they say appears as they exist are functioning things. Yeah, so that helps me understand, okay, so this is what they say appears as they exist, versus thoughts, concepts about things. Do they appear the way they exist? No. Yeah, I think that's the distinction they're trying to make, that with our senses, we can see things that exist the way they appear, right? They're not refuting the existence of the gong, the table, right? Whereas when we think about the gong, when we think about things, those do not Exist the way they appear, yeah. So they're starting to make that distinction, and I think that can be useful, yeah. Like often when we, I don't know, it, I guess when I first came to Buddhism, a big piece I mean was was realizing that the person I was in love with and who had broken up with me, I had hung on to some idea of the person. It's like the person was changing moment by moment, but I kept thinking they were the same from two years ago, <laughs> and then I got dumped, and it was like. You changed. <laughs> it's like, <duh. laughs> But you know, you ha- somehow write that image. I mean, most fights are about that, right? You don't give me flowers anymore, or how come you left your socks on the ground? And <laughs> so we're hanging on to some fabricated meaning generality from goodness knows when. And then it's like clashing with our direct experience. And it's upsetting. So I think that's, use- that's how. Understanding conventional ultimate truths in this school can help us, right? To just see, does our thought consciousness accord with reality? And I think, on that very, uh, uh, like, on the, you know, in terms of what we can see, hear, and experience directly. Yeah. And just seeing that gap, even, I think is helpful. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. So I think, you know, and also it's said that this whole presentation of the two truths. Is something that was um, that was projected like retroactively? I don't know if that's so, it's, how to say it's like the south. You know, creating these four schools is like a, is a is an academic construct. It's meant to help us. They're like staircase to get to the highest view, and then we take this idea of two truths and we go backwards and see what that could be like in each school. So whether there were real South Tranticas who were out there saying this is ultimate truth, this is conventional, we don't know historically. Yeah, but we can think of it as a it's a learning structure. Yeah, If we learn what the two truths are in each level, they're helping us to get to a very subtler and subtler apparently view of what actually exists. Yeah. So at this level, yeah, we say that um, the sutra school is saying that um, things exist as they appear. Right? What I can see exists, <laughs> and what I think about is not so accurate. Yeah.
3: Okay, so then, <laughs> what we just talked about, conventional truths, that conceptual thoughts about that gong ultimately are unable to perform a function, so it would be considered to be a conventional truth? So then when we have conceptual consciousness under impermanent phenomena, how is that different than the conventional truth of a meaning generality of that gong?
0: We can check later, but I suspect when we talk about the consciousnesses here, right, oh, Mm -hmm. conceptual consciousness, (laughs) right, they're not the immediate mental direct perceivers. Yeah, but we do say that all meaning generalities are impermanent. Are permanent? Yeah, are are permanent. Permanent. Yeah, which was what venerable has been struggling with, right? Like, what do you mean? All meaning generalities are permanent. Yeah, the one insight we got from the recent interviews with His Holiness uh, um, was Sam Dong Rinpoche saying, "Not all consciousnesses are, are not all conceptual minds are meaning generalities," something like that. And we're like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> I can't say much more than that, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and they're mental. What do we have for the conceptual consciousnesses there, yeah, which are divided into two? But he files them happily here, a determinative knower that apprehends a sound generality and a meaning generality as suitable to be mixed. That's those are meaning generalities. I'm just curious to
3: know what it's not a conventional term.
0: Yeah, but he files it here under impermanent though. Yeah, the meaning generality of a gong. Yeah. Okay. Something to check on. Thanks.
6: I think it's referring to the consciousness itself, the knower, and not the object of
0: Uh. of
6: being known, how you want to say it. Yeah, so it's the consciousness and not the meaning generality it's referring to.
4: Okay. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, but it's in opposition to direct perceivers, though. Right, which are mental, like the mental the the mental consciousness that directly knows its object. Anyhow, thank you. (laughs) Something to research further. (laughs) Okay. So that's and then the last one, uh actually it's not the last one, but yeah, we get to the generally characterized versus specifically characterized phenomena. So again, what's that trying to get at?
3: The manifest phenomena is one that can be Directly got out because it exists from its own side, where the generally characterized phenomena is only gotten at by a mental construct?
0: Yeah, we can go back to the <laughs> definitions. But, no, but okay. that, yeah, I know that this one, I mean, it, it just uh, refers to how um, the specific characteristics of an impermanent phenomena appear to the direct perceiver. All of the specific characteristics, right, including the impermanence of the pot. Um, the color of the pot, the shape of the pot, everything appears to the direct perceiver, yeah, in its full glory, right?
3: Without being Without imputed being by imputed. A thought, consciousness.
0: yeah. So I don't need to, yeah. So there's no conceptualization involved there, yeah, right, raw data. Um, and the interesting thing is, yeah, saying that the impermanence appears, but the direct perceiver doesn't apprehend the impermanence, right? So. So yeah, just the idea as if the perceiver is just there, passive, and here's this object with all its specific characteristics appearing. That's how I think of it, right? And again, yeah, it's trying to contrast with the generally characterized phenomena which are imputed, right? Yeah. So I think, again, just emphasizing the difference in the quality of perception, right, one that actually can take in all the details, all the data, right? Whereas this, again, you're Imputing right things that may or may not be there, and you're putting things together, and you're just getting a mixed picture, is the sense I get. Yeah, um, yeah. And then the last piece was uh, manifest phenomena, right, which is uh, mutually inclusive with impermanent, right, because these are things that appear directly. Versus, um, but hidden phenomena does not only map onto permanence. Right, the opposite of um, manifest phenomena are hidden phenomena. but they encompass both permanence and impermanence because both can be known by thought. So yeah, so that's the divisions. So I think again, yeah, looking at them in terms of what they are trying to tell us about each set in this map. Okay. Then briefly, uh, we get into how the impermanence are divided. And in this um, presentation, we have form consciousness, and non-associated compositional factors or abstract composites. Yeah, and as Venerable Nima was saying, this also is the five aggregates. right? So I think a lot of our meditation actually comes in here, in these pieces. This is the basis upon which we impute a person. So we're trying to break it down right, and see on what basis am I saying there's a person here or there? Or, yeah, what's going on? And it's in this chapter that um, Daniel Perdue really gets into how this is a map for us to use in um, developing insight. Right, he says, we are analyzing functioning things in order to develop special insight for the purpose of liberation. You know, and I sent around this chart too. You know, it's just a picture of all the forms <laughs> broken down to all these parts. So I'm just curious if people have use this in your meditation or found it useful in any way sharing from your experience
6: I found the concept of meaning generality really interesting and I was looking into I guess some psychology and some psychological research on how concepts are formed and made me really think about you know what is that process and we rely so much on it and Yeah, uh, I've been looking at it in my meditations.
3: Because I'm so attached to our beautiful place here, Mm. only on occasion, maybe once or twice since we started this, have I tried to break down my perception from the I-sense power to the visible form to the eye consciousness on what's actually going on. But within a nanosecond, I'm right into my conceptual consciousness, which is imputing beauty on it, color, I mean, the color, shape, and form is there, that that whole, so to sh- try to slow that down to what am I actually perceiving and then what am I telling myself about what I'm perceiving because the, the discourse starts soon after contact. Mm. So that's been an interesting experiment to see that there's a lot going on when I see something.
0: Mm. Yeah, I would say the same for me too, just, seeing how, I think I'm seeing or hearing something, but actually there's a thought about it already going on. Like when Venerable asked us, you know, when you hear someone walking down the hallway or something like that, what do you hear? And my first thought was, I hear Venerable Tarpa. <laughs> Immediately, that's where my mind goes. Already, Oh, there's a person, they're up at this time, and they're walking. I hear Venerable Tarpa walking. Right? I'm not thinking, that is a sound that is... Neutral that is conjoined with consciousness, uh, produced by elements conjoined with consciousness. Right? Like, so at least that just helps me see where my mind goes immediately. And then if, if we have a certain thought about why is someone walking at three in the morning, and boom, right? Affliction, or yeah, it happens real quick. Yeah.
4: Or even just keep the mind in uh, describing just the sound of this. You know, vibration on the floor, that kind. Just staying to that level even is so difficult.
0: You know? mm. yeah. I think my one time experiencing that was I used to do, I, I went for one Vipassana meditation course. where All we did during walking meditation was to name what was going on. Seeing, 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 hearing, 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 walking, walking. I was so bored. <laughs> but, but, you know, you really see it just slows everything down. Thinking, thinking, seeing, seeing, seeing. And you, you're like, your mind's just running all over the place. You know? You're just trying to walk 10 steps and turn around and walk back. <laughs> and, and they say, okay, your practice is just to note. Note what happens in the mind. Okay, seeing, seeing. <laughs> Yeah. So I think, in a way, that's if we play with this material in our daily life or even in meditation, right? That's what it can do. Um, another one of my teachers in the past, too, pointed out, you know, again, it's all the working adults sitting here, and he said, If I told you your car is scratched, how would you feel? <laughs> People were like, oh my, Yeah. <laughs> but he's like, It's just sound, right? Have you seen that your car is actually scratched? You don't know. I thought it was such a good example. In that moment, your car is scratched. Immediately, anxiety. Like, who? Who did it? He's like, it's just sound. So I think, you know, if we can slow things down to that level, so-and-so comes in and goes, sound,
1: (laughs) sound.
4: (laughs) It just reminds me of, sometimes in my life, I have (laughs) experienced something and created a story about it. And it about a certain person, and then talk to them about it, or confronted them with it, and it had nothing to do with them. You know, I had it all wrong. That happens so easily. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And when I was talking about this with Venerable chuni too, she was pointing out how why, when we do nonviolent communication, the first step is just getting to the observation. Like what and it always says, right, imagine it's a video camera recording. Right, what with their, just your senses do you see a person walked into the room and sat down versus they took my seat, how could they? <laughs> right. It's like someone walked in, they sat down, <laughs> that's it.
2: i share another example in the Zen monastery. Um, the he pointed out, um, I have a box here. There was a box, a closed box, and I have a snake inside. Do you believe me? And then um, he was testing our reactions. Some had been really strong reactions, and some, you know, didn't care so much. So, but it's the same thing, you know. He presented something, and um, how do
0: we react? Due to their thought consciousness. Yeah. So I think yeah, that's where we what this whole analysis of functioning things is trying to get us to right to break down how is how are our perceptions produced. Yeah, so according to this school, um, they're telling us, right? There is a sense power, right? That's in each of our sense faculties, right? Which is an uncommon empowering condition, right? So that just means, so that means, with the eye sense faculty, it makes the eye only able to see uh, shape and color, apparently, or forms, right? The eye is not going to hear, <laughs> so because of these uh, sense powers, okay? So there's the internal f- matter. And then, yep, you have an observed object, the source, right, the form source that interacts with this. And then you also have a previous moment of consciousness, right? So A plus B plus C produces the next moment of a sense consciousness, right? Whereas for the mental consciousnesses, they can be produced by a previous moment of any uh, consciousness, right? One moment of mind produces another moment of mind. Yeah, so it's just helping us to break down what's going on there when we perceive things. Um, I thought, too, maybe we can read some of the definitions here. Because I think here the definitions are useful in that, yeah, they just point out the characteristics of these things and how they, what, what, what's being produced. Where are we? Page three of the division of functioning things into three, right? So when we get to consciousnesses, yeah, that which is clear and knowing. <laughs> the division of, uh, it's called basic Buddhist ontology. Yeah. So, you know, at least for me anyway, when I see it, it's like, it all looks the same <laughs> and I just skim over, right? <laughs> like, okay, that's, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe let's just have a look at what it's trying to tell us. <laughs> so with the eye sense power, yeah, it is clear. I think the clear part always means it's not, that means it's not Uh, atomically established, right? Is it? No, it is atomically established, yeah. So what's clear mean here? Because when we say the mind is clear and knowing, one way of understanding that is that clear means formless, right? Yeah, so clear means something else here. Reflective, you think? Yeah, that it reflects the aspect of the object? You think so? We better check. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah, so the, the... within the inter- internal form that part's clear uh, that part is uh, evident right that means it's within the continuum of the person it's not something outside of the continuum right yeah i wonder what the clear part means yeah. okay another thing to look up clear yeah because when we talk about the m- yeah so that's when we talk about the mind being clear and knowing Yeah, but when we talk about I sense power being clear. A clear form. I wonder what a clear form is. (laughs) Yes, Christina. Yeah, maybe it just means it can't be direct Well, it can be seen maybe by a clairvoyant. That's what we came to, right? We asked Geshe Dadu and I don't know if we got an answer around that. Did Geshe Dadu answer that question? We have to go back and check. Anyhow Right, because we were wondering, like, is there can can another can something perceive the sense powers directly? Right, like, must it be like a clairvoyant consciousness in the continuum of a of a being who has clairvoyance? Then they can see; they can actually directly perceive our sense powers. So, okay, another question that we can keep in mind when we get to these clear. It says, it says
4: here that um, a sense power is clear internal form. Because it is matter within the physical body of a person that cannot be perceived
0: by any sense consciousness. Mm, Right. So what Christina was saying. Uh. So clear because it cannot be perceived by sense consciousness. Okay. But possibly by a clairvoyant. (laughs) Who knows? All right. Yeah. Okay. And it's internal form, right? It's within the continuum of the person. And I think the focus is that it is the uncommon empowering condition for its own effect a particular sense consciousness. Yeah. So it determines the scope of that consciousness, I guess. Yeah. And I found the, I mean, if we just skip down to the definitions of consciousnesses, right, that they talk about how that conscious, that knower is produced, I think it's useful for that, you know, helping us understand how these, you know, like a mental consciousness, a knower that is produced in dependence upon its own uncommon empowering condition, a mental sense power. Yeah. So that just helped me think about how one moment of mind produces the next moment of mind. Yeah. And with the others, whereas for the sense consciousnesses, there's always the sense power and then some kind of object. Yeah, the object that's observed, the source, yeah, the form source. Okay. And just one little note I wanted to make here was that um, later on, if you recall, we studied Arya devas 400 stanzas, um, and he gets into things like refuting truly existent sense organs and its uh, objects, or refuting truly existent characteristics. So I think that's where we see how learning this foundation helps us to understand that material later on. Right? Because he's, then he starts to challenge, Really? could there really be a truly existent object and a truly existent sense organ and a truly existent sound that's produced right he starts to question like then where is the sound is it in the object is it in the sense power is it somewhere in the middle here <laughs> right then we start getting into the final view right where he starts challenging at this level, we say, "Okay, this is how sound is produced, right?" But that whole chapter in Aryadeva uh, about the middle way view uh, starts to refute that, and it builds on this, right? Like, where, where could the sound be? Like, could sound really be produced like that? <laughs> yeah, right. And he gets into how basically all three are merely designated, right? They arise at the same time. There cannot be a sound without a sound consciousness, <laughs> there cannot be like sound just waiting out there. <laughs> for me to, I don't know, somehow, yeah, it just all arises dependently. So I think when we look at the parts like this, it helps us to get to that view later on. Yeah, Making sense? (laughs) Okay. So I think we have uh, used our time, (laughs) as we say. And I wanted to just end off by saying recently, um, Bill McGee was telling me how who is good friends with Dan Perdue, the author of this book, was pointing out how uh, Dan wrote this book when he was dying, basically. and you know, the, So the editor would come back with all the errors, and Bill was very frustrated by that, just like, do you not see this man is in the process of dying, and he's trying his darndest to get this book out. So I think that's something to, we can think about, like why he worked so hard to... This was his life's work, yeah. This the white book on translating the debate topics. He dedicated his whole life to wanting to help people understand how to engage in debate, and it was. I'm sure he thought it was the most important thing he was going to leave behind, writing this book. And yeah, so with that thought in mind, <laughs> we can, um, yeah, do a bit of digestion and dedication. Both for then produce continuum wherever he might be, <laughs> that he will continue to teach, yeah, learn, study, spread the Dharma for everybody's benefit.